Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning and welcome to this rather chilly Tuesday morning. As you can hear, it's me who's starting the show, which means it's just me, because Big Daddy Liberty is traveling in his rather impressive bucky around the Eastern Cape. Coronavirus appears to have done the, the deed for us as well, in that I've lost my guest, because my guest has a young daughter whose school has closed down, as I think have most schools, and suddenly he's... Uh, he has to look after her and couldn't come into the uh, studio. So hopefully we'll have him another time. I won't give details at this stage, but you have me and I'm going to really look at a variety of, of things, both uh, newsworthy and just hopefully interesting and a little bit controversial. If you would like to in any way participate in expressing your view on any of the issues we raise, the studio number is 010-140-3020. And Telegram is 061-895-1019. And finally, you can go the old-fashioned route, which is SMS 34518. Sorry, 519. I'm not doing well on the numbers. I'd also strongly recommend that to access more interesting articles and opinions and particularly podcasts and videos, please go to dailyfriend.co.za, which is our on, essentially our online newspaper. So let's have a little bit of a look at the coronavirus. Um, I'm sure you, the station has dealt significantly with it in, in a number of respects. Just a few observations and perhaps some comments which may be of use. Um, there's no doubt that the government appears to be dealing with the issue with, with the issue in due, with due seriousness and, and thoroughly, and it is getting the private sector on board to cooperate. And, and that's what we really need to see from the government at this stage. The, uh, I have only two negative comments to make about uh, President Ramaphosa's speech on Sunday night. The first was that he was two hours late, and that's become something of a, of a habit, and it, it doesn't look good. The press doesn't like it, and it's essentially not fair. Um, and if it, if it were the first time, I think we'd have all forgiven him, but he's been late probably for every news conference he's ever given, and so it's becoming a little a little more annoying than that. The other thing he said was that in dealing with the virus for people who live at distance from their places of work, he referred to due to the apartheid spatial planning, people have to travel long distances in taxis. And he, so he said, our people. Now, I think we've reached a stage where, particularly in the circumstances of something where we all have to pull together, the reference to apartheid spatial planning is, is really not necessary, as is it's very clear, as we've, as we've said in the past, that his reference to our people, um, is clearly pointed, and it seems really unnecessary. This wasn't the time or the place for it. Um, but nevertheless, let's uh, move on. Just having a look at the virus itself, um, the virus itself and the reason why you have the 1.5-meter distance is that it's a rather heavy virus. So 
anything, it, it's likely to essentially sink at or before 1.5 meters. It won't travel through the air at great distances. So in that respect, uh, we have a, a, there's an advantage, say, say an advantage with this type of uh, virus. It, it drops. Um, the other thing is that it, it doesn't, it thrives in cold temperatures, which might be part of the reason why, that we have a little bit of breathing space with regard to spread, in that once you get to temperatures of, say, 24 degrees, it starts to um, wither and die. And the reason why the EU and America and all the, and all the countries that have it in the, on the northern hemisphere have the problem at present is because they are still in the grip of cold winter. So... I'm not sure that we're essentially behind the curve so much as we, just by virtue of being Southern Hemisphere, the, uh, the the risk is less at this stage. And it is a risk that has started from people traveling into the country. In other words, it hasn't come from other parts of Africa just by virtue of existing in Africa. It's actually been transported from the Northern Hemisphere. But clearly once people come in, if they've been exposed and they are a threat, that when internal transmission will start to be, uh, will start to become apparent. I've got quite an interesting, um, WhatsApp note from a colleague who's in a, in a, uh, sorry, from a neighbor who's in a private practice in the area. Um, and she and her colleagues keep up to date with the National Institute of um, Communicable Diseases, who are the, essentially the body looking after the issue. And they are staffed by extraordinary women, all professors, people like Lucille Bloomberg, uh, Lynn Morris, and um, Cheryl Cohen. So I, I would say we're in very, very good hands. And she, they just want to correct some of the impression about testing and that the it's not quite as a sort of hit and miss as perhaps it's, it's, it's been implied or as it should be. The official and strict criteria are that someone has returned from area of high risk where there's a, or there's a confirmed outbreak within the last 14 days. Plus, you must have a fever of more than 38 degrees, a cough, sore throat, shortness of breath, body ache, chills or fatigue. I think what's important... With, with that is that it's not a, an illness that presents with a little bit of a cold. It goes, it directly becomes a flu. So a, a, a cold is not necessarily relevant or likely to, tra- to translate into anything um, that resembles uh, COVID-19. She also says, if you have no symptoms, please do not test. If you genuinely believe you have been exposed but have no symptoms, it is imperative that you self-isolate for 14 days to monitor if you do develop the symptoms, at which point you should be tested. In addition, a negative test does not provide you with 100% reassurance that you are not incubating COVID-19. If a family member or some close contact fulfills the criteria but you do not, they must be tested but you don't need to be tested. Um, multiple negative tests from asymptomatic members of the public does not help, help our healthcare workers or our country. It uses resources and it, uh, both in, the, in, ter- in terms of people and in terms of testing kits and, and related materials. She says we will run out of tests and waste time analyzing inappropriate tests. She says, and this is probably very important, is please Remember that we are still going to see all of the usual viruses and bacteria and that all, not all current illness is COVID-19 related. 
But please do not hesitate to contact any doctor if you are unwell and if you're self-isolating. She thanks you and she says doctors will be, will be more than happy to provide assistance and take care of you. So it's a, it's a, it is a very tricky thing because we, we are understandably prone to a little bit of panic and panic can waste time, resources and generally energy that's not that's not necessary but it's a it's a it's a matter of of applying common sense and seeing what comes up for you with you or your or your family or friends and and doing so appropriately i for example my work environment almost everyone not everyone but almost everyone has been asked to work from home which in this day of modern technology is amazingly Viable. I think the only problem people will discover, as I've worked from home alone before, is that you you can get lonely, so you end up going out for coffee to coffee shops quite a bit, where you might pick up the virus. Um, but certainly, the coffee at home or outside is likely to be better than in the office. So there there are pros and cons to to working at home, but it's maybe an ideal opportunity to create some structure and go for a walk for an hour once a day. As we go to our first ad break. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Right, um, let's move on from coronavirus and just have a look at the PIC Commission report, which was, shall we say, extremely damning, particularly into the well-known figures of Dr. Dan Machila, who, who was the CEO, and uh, Dr. Survey, Iqbal Survey, the owner of IO, IOL, um, whatever you want to name, who is a very strange personality. Uh, the Judicial Commission has made far-reaching findings on the government, governance of the PRC, which is a state-owned asset manager, recommending measures to insulate it against political influence. In particular, that it should not be chaired, as it always has been, by the Deputy Minister of Finance. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that the Deputy Ministers have been untoward in any way, but they are still the government. And this should, be, the space should be kept from, away from the government and in the hands of a, um, a chair who is really an expert in, in the area of asset management. It is also recommended that trade unions and depositors, and in this sense it refers to the government employees' pension fund as an example, do not sit on the board and that board members are not selected through a public process in Parliament but on the basis of skill and experience. This is a rather tired issue for us because everything that requires skills should be governed by people with skills and experience. And it once again... Um, gives perhaps the middle finger to the cadre deployment um, philosophy of the ANC, which it holds to very, very passionately, but has been absolutely disastrous. Um, The Commission has made these recommendations because in looking at the governance, the role played by top executives and the and the board, there was an abundant opportunity for political influence in decision-making. and the, what's interesting apparently is the convention that the Deputy Minister of Finance chair it is not governed in fact by any law. So all in all, it's basically <laughs> saying that we should behave 
the, the PRC and bodies like it should behave more professionally. <laughs> Who'd have thought? Um, right. That just gives you a little bit of idea on the PRC, but which, whose main areas of, of, uh, main, the main area of concern is the trillions that it is responsible for. Little item, but perhaps uh, rewarding, if not being the final nail in the coffin, shall we say, is that former President Jacob Zuma has had his application to halt his trial into um, corruption, which dates back to the arms deal, if anyone can even remember the arms deal. But the Supreme Court of Appeals has denied him the right to hold the uh, the trial for any reason. So presumably he's going to try and go to the last court of resort, which, which will be the uh, constitutional court, even though on the face of it I cannot see the constitutional court being um, relevant because I don't see this as being a constitutional matter. But we watch the space. Perhaps, however, inevitably he will go to trial, and that would make things very, very different. Then there was a... I don't know whether it's a funny, weird, or very worrying story in the, um, um, in the, I think it was the Sunday Times this weekend, about a German businessman who claims to have essentially been the motivating force behind the idea of nationalizing the Reserve Bank. Because although the idea has been mooted for a number of years, it actually never t- took Hold until the December 2017 elective conference when Cyril Ramaphosa was elected president of the ANC. Um, one Michael Durr, who holds 10,000 shares in the Reserve Bank, has boasted that he influenced the radical economic transformation grouping within the African National Congress to adopt the resolution at its 2017 conference to nationalize Saab. Durr is hoping that the ANC's general National General Council later in the year will fast track the implementation of nationalization this year. And why would he do that? Because nationalization would cost the Reserve Bank in payout to the shareholders between 50 billion and 70 billion rand. And, um, although Ramaphosa has said to the ANC that the buyout is unaffordable unaffordable at present, presumably Dewar feels that, believes that he is going to reap some rewards in this regard. And in this respect, he's alleged to have interacted uh, with disgraced Ekerileni Mayor Mzwandile Masine and the head of the ANC Economic Transformation Subcommittee of the NEC, Enoch Odongwana. Um, he's also apparently had some contact with the spokesman, uh, uh, Mabe. So um, he says he started this process as far back as the first term of Jacob Zuma, which won't entirely come as a surprise, in 2009. And other than the people already mentioned, he also dealt with former General Kasatu General Secretary Zuelanzi Mavavi, Pravin Gordon, Gordon, Gwedi Mantasha, and Tito Mbaweni. Gordon and Mbaweni apparently were less than, uh, the, less than helpful to him, shall we say. But he says he spent about 365 hours a year, uh, um, sorry, the former government, sorry, the former Saab governor, Jill Marcus, told the AGM of the, of Saab that the legal team has spent about 365 hours a year responding to more than 160 pages of queries from Durr. So there's something 
creepy, funny, and worrying about the fact that a single individual, an overseas resident, what's more, um, can actually try and push for the nationalization of the Reserve Bank so he can earn money. It shows it can be done, and it, it, the terrible thing is that it's really caught on with the ANC, and it's being pushed constantly. It goes quiet, and then it goes up, and then it goes quiet again. So we are vulnerable to the outside world. Then another perhaps little curious uh, uh, item is the fact that King Dalindiebo, who, if you remember, became a member of the DA while he was fighting charges of murder, assault, etc. Well, it appears that he's due to be back in court in June on charges of malicious damage to property and assault after attacking his family at the Royal Palace in the early hours of Friday morning. And his family included his his son and his, his daughter-in-law, who apparently has ended up in um, in hospital as a result. So clearly letting him out on parole after serving four years of a 12-year sentence was not the, the best idea. And as in a lot of the crime issues we've discussed in recent times, certainly more horrifying than that, and particularly those pertaining to childhood, child children, the parole system is very exposed at the moment, and we'll watch that space because they have, they've got to be changes in how the issues manage. Then on a more humorous note, the EFF has recommended that Robben Island be used to quarantine COVID-19 sufferers. There's merit to that because they would certainly be quarantined, but perhaps we should have it in reverse, and that is quarantine the EFF and perhaps forget to send a ferry across to bring them back. Then the uh, just a little item on the presidential debate, the presidential elections in America, the Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, who are all, who are both, sorry, not all, who are both over the age of 75, had a, quite a vicious debate on Sunday night during which um, Biden promised to have um, as, a, as his vice president running mate a woman. Now, that isn't, that's very nice, and I, and I, I certainly hope that, there's a, 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 that there is an appropriate woman to hold the position. But more than being a woman is the position must be held by somebody who is best suited to holding the position and who could become the most powerful person in the world should anything happen to Joe Biden. Now, one of the problems that we did with that has been discussed at length is the fact that Joe Biden's mental faculties are really probably very possibly impaired. So this is an interesting issue. Choose the best person, irrespective of whether they be a man or a woman. Then, Perhaps the most excoriating uh, issues to to come up is the loss that the public protector suffered against Cyril Ramaphosa in the um, in the High Court. It was a three bench High Court of the of the North High Court of North Gauteng High Court of um, um, in which a three bench panel, including the judge president of the High Court. Judge Dunstan Malambo found against the uh, the public protector. Now, apparently, this is the fifth judgment which in which which has been found against her. The fifth judgment, and the court excoriated her in no uncertain terms, essentially in declaring that she's 
doesn't know the law, hasn't applied it properly. Her decision is essentially embarrassing in that it is so unjudicial and probably unjudicious at the same time. But basically the, the court said that the finding was that President Ramaphosa had absolutely no obligation to reveal to Parliament what money he had received for his um, role in trying to get support for his bid for the ANC presidency in 2019. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's absolutely astonishing. I'll, I'll give you some of the, some of the wording they used. It's, 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 it's not pretty. Um, they said that she displaced, uh, she displayed, um, uh, reckless, uh, material misdirections. Her, her findings were irrational and unlawful conclusion. She displayed a complete lack of basic knowledge of the law, and in some matters her findings were either fundamentally flawed or simply unfathomable and totally irrational. Um, it goes on to point out that she made basic ever- errors, she gobbled, and there was confusion. In one instance, she uh, is... Uh, she had changed material uh, terms of of her uh, of what she was claiming, and that she displayed a deep seated inability or refusal to process facts before her in a logical and fair minded manner. Such a response is difficult to reconcile with her constitutional obligations and has no foundation in fact or law. Furthermore, she completely failed to properly analyze and understand the facts and evidence. And displayed anything but an open mind. If she were a judge, she would be, she should be off the bench very quickly insofar as the Judicial Service Commission operates uh, quickly. But it just gives more ammunition to the Speaker of the, of Parliament to put in place the process for putting her forward for, for the termination of her position. It's absolutely outrageous. So those are really some of the issues that have come up in the last week or so. And for the remainder of the of the hearing, I'm oh, hearing I'm in court in judicial speak. For the remainder of the program, I'm probably going to deal with my least favorite person, just because I, I do feel like ranting and raving. I don't like Greta Thunberg. And unlike the adults who gave her a standing ovation at the United Nations, after she had berated them for ruining her future, I I, I didn't like her then and I don't like her now. And I don't like her for a variety of reasons. She, for her to be aggressive towards adults who frankly know a hell of a lot more about climate Warming than she does, um, is, is nasty. I, I, I hold to the submission that the children should be seen and not heard, and I think that applies to her. She's become an idol spouting a message of how the, the world and the adults in that world are doing nothing to forestall a c- climate c- catastrophe. And I think she has been largely, um, the leader in the movement to, cr- to create a, a level of hysteria, particularly with young people. Recently, there was a gathering in Bristol in England of about 35,000 people, which included very many young children. And I think that's, never mind the irresponsibility of the parents for taking them and for buying into this, but she got up and essentially just repeated what she said 
at the United Nations. People are dying. She did not, she has not given us any facts. And she does not say how many people are dying, who are dying, where they are dying, and how their deaths are related to climate warming. If she could give us that, I would certainly take her more seriously. But I've never heard her give her that. What I have heard, and she has had support from certain climate change organizations who are admittedly fronts for for anti-globalization and particularly for destroying the capitalist system, is that is really what that, she is be, she is their cheerleader to achieve, achieve that end. So essentially they are uh, Marxist, socialist, political organizations and climate, war, climate change per se has very little to do with their, their ultimate goals. The other thing as well is that climate change has been firmly on the agenda for over 20 years. There are many organizations and companies and governments taking it seriously, doing things to try and mitigate against that. It is not easy. The silence, the science, unlike what Greta says, is not settled. There is a lot of work that is being done and that needs to be done and a lot that is unknown. And she's, she, and because a lot of it is not immediately as visible as she is, she's decrying it as not doing enough or, or doing very little. Greta also comes from probably one of the most prosperous, safest, healthiest countries on earth. The highest standard of living, um, and in a country where heating can be provided to, to its, to its uh, citizens, without burning fossil fuels and without damaging the atmosphere. That is not the case with a great deal of other countries, particularly countries that are developing and very much, very much poor third world countries. They don't have that luxury. And for her to dismiss growth as if it's some horrible and distasteful thing when other countries desperately need growth, it's, it's frankly unerringly arrogant. And I really, really dislike that. Um, she, she, this is the text of what she says um, at the at the United Nations and and repeatedly since. My message is that we'll be watching you. I don't know who we is, but we'll be watching you. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? We don't go to the young people for hope. We go to young people who know something and can join the the issue and fight to deal with the issue and, and apply the science. Those are the young people. She has, as a young person, almost nothing to offer us. Um, you have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words, and yet I'm one of the lucky ones. Now, the only people who I think who could have stolen her dreams and her childhood are her parents, and they probably need to be arrested for child abuse and she should be taken to, taken into uh, social social welfare or social care whatever exists in, in in Sweden she is so privileged it just doesn't bear thinking about and in light of that um and and being really annoyed at her crystal clear view on on science what i will do after the break is look at a couple of people who are who are doing things that Greta should be compared to, and frankly, she would be found completely and utterly wanting. So I let you 
ponder on what I've said, and we'll be back after the ad break. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Now to talk about a couple of people who are making a difference and with a, a level of humility that Greta could just beg for. Do you remember Malala Yousafzai? Yousafzai, sorry. She was the world-famous teenager who nearly died for her activism to bring education to female children. Malala wrote a blog at about 12 years of age for the, for the BBC Urdu service about her life during the Taliban occupation of the Swat Valley. Following a New York Times documentary about her, she became an international figure and she was nominated for the International Children's Prize, um, Peace Prize by no other than our Archbishop Desmond Tutu. But at the age of 15, she, together with two other ga- girls, was shot by a Taliban gunman for her activism around education for girls. She was shot in the head, and after a long recovery, including in Rawalpindi and in the UK, she recovered and became a prominent activist specifically for the right to education for, 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 for children. She co-founded a non-profit organization for her activism and became the youngest Nobel Laureate as a co-recipient in 2014 at the age of 17. She wrote a book and became the youngest person ever to address the House of Commons of Canada. She attended a high school in in Britain before reading for a PPE at Oxford, um, where I think she may have qualified... um, uh, graduated by now, but she, that's what she has most recently done. S- certainly her public appearance have always shown a young woman of clarity, thoughtfulness, purpleness, purposefulness, and well-mannered and considerate in style. And I, I think that the contrast, sh- on contrast, she wins hands down g- in giving both in commitment, reality, and the in its own way, the enormity of the issue she faces and the irony is she's fighting for, particularly for the education of girls and Greta's saying her privileged education has been disrupted, which was disrupted by choice, by her and her family. And, you know, she doesn't have to, she should go back to, to school. It's, it's a great privilege to get an education and then go on. And you can only become a more useful member of society if you, if you did so. If she did so, rather. On the other side of the spectrum is Microsoft founder Bill Gates, who together with his wife Melinda used billions of their wealth to deal with, to set up a foundation that deals with the world's most intractable challenges and which face, which hit the world's poorest citizens. Their belief is that every life has equal value. The foundation has dis- distributed HIV-AIDS drugs and has tackled malaria. And one seen from some of their appearances on, on television, on programs, news and documentary, that they've done in huge amounts. But when Bill Gates discovered that one in nine child deaths worldwide die because of diarrhea, and that it is the second leading cause of death under the age of five, he set his extraordinary mind to finding ways to providing sanitation in crowded slums which did not require electricity or water. And poor sanitation is the largest cause of the diarrhea that's killing children. 
Um, he used his millions of dollars to sponsor the invention of a suitable sewerage system which could be installed in a number of towns and villages um, and an extraordinary amount of time, money and energy was required and he not unnaturally persuaded other people to get involved in in, the, in inventing such a thing. Um, and what he did eventually, he, he they put in place a system which can serve a good few thousand people it uses the waste matter, it burns off the waste matter which produces steam, which then turns into potable water, and at no stage do you have to use, as I said, electricity um, or water to, to complete this process. I know there's been a system installed like that in South Africa, and you know, I have, I, I don't as yet know the extent to which it's been of value, but it has certainly been a very concentrated attempt to see a problem that can be dealt with. And those are the communities that need the growth that, that Greta Thunberg so, uh, so sort of publicly dismisses, um, as, as something the capitalist world is only, it's the only thing that the capitalist world is obsessed by. Perhaps one should send her a letter referring her to these, uh, to these, uh, shall we say, experiences and perhaps let her obtain a little bit of humility. And there's nothing to be harmed in going back to school and obtaining a, a, a proper education. There's a, there's a sort of counter to Greta, and I think it's, she's a 19 year old German girl who has a, 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 an opposite take on climate change. And it's not that climate change doesn't exist and doesn't have to be dealt with, but that she believes that one has to be led by the facts, the evidence, and the science in order to make the, in order to do the things that are needed to do in order to bring down uh, um, the threat of climate change. Um, sort of on a last note on Greta, I'll just uh, give you, her latest little antic, which I thought was in very bad taste, but the fault actually lies with the EU. The EU held a conference on reducing emissions, carbon, carbon emissions by a certain date. So they invited her to her, their conference last week. And the decision taken was that they aimed to reduce emissions in the European Union to naught, naught by the year 2050. This didn't please our Greta too much, and she expressed her disapproval and then really went the extra mile. When the EU president put out his hand to shake her hand at the end of the conference, she refused to take his hand and refused to shake it. And I don't think this had anything to do with the coronavirus. So let's put it this way. If you want to get people on board in a cause, show a bit of humility, show a lot of knowledge, put forward a lot of evidence, and don't be rude and nasty. So with that in mind, let's just have a look at, uh, at uh, other issues that, uh, that, we've been, that we've been dealing with, and particularly that perhaps some of my colleagues have been dealing with. And I'll, I'll just mention for, for the sheer fun of it, the, la- the latest... Florida man story that uh, one of that my, one of my far, um, colleagues came up with. Jose Herrera was held by Disney World official security 
after being caught using a card stolen from a deceased Ohio man. When the police arrived to question him, he allegedly attempted to eat the card to hide the evidence. This evidence thing is really getting out of hand. Herrera had used the card to purchase $400 in gift cards, $360 worth of jewelry, and a soft drink. He was also found to be in possession of 13 other fraudulent credit and debit cards and a bag of white powder about which he told police, I'm not going to lie, it's cocaine. Herrera was charged with multiple criminal counts, including possession of cocaine, possession of a stolen credit card, fraud involving a deceased person, and making false statements to law enforcement while under oath. Now, there's something quite intriguing about the fact that Florida has the Florida man, and we need to one day investigate why this is so. But in the meantime, let's go to an ad break. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Thank you and for returning and just to talk about what we will likely to be looking at in the next week or so. Well, it goes without saying that coronavirus and its manifestations and how particularly how we are managing the crisis um, is panning out. As I said previously, we're certainly, um, excuse me, we're certainly seem to be going about it in the right way and perhaps we, we've really got to look at uh, at not being very uh, mindful but not uh, but not panicking um, I think we're going to also look in, in reference to that what if what impact and how the impact is going to be dealt with with, reg- with regard to mass transport in particular. I know that started to continue, started to be dealt with, and the government has said that it will conti- the travel in taxis will continue, which is unavoidable because people do have to get to work. But I think what is going to come up again or in more detail are the economic effects of the virus. And perhaps one area that we will be looking at, and I know it's been started to be looked at in the state, is the effect particularly on small businesses of businesses threatening to go under or at least laying off or suspending staff because their own businesses are just you know, the, the amount of business is dying off and falling apart. But, but trying to avoid people having to completely lose their jobs or lose their salaries. And in this respect, we're going to be having a look at areas like um, using various existing tax measures, perhaps certain rebates. It's unclear at this stage exactly what is most feasible, but it is something with, I think we need to look at very, very desperately. The other thing I think we're going to have to look at, and we're going to have to look at that in much more detail, is the issue of our water resources. And this is particularly in light of the fact that one of the prevention and precautionary measures with the COVID virus is either using hand sanitizers, which for poor people are neither going to be available nor affordable, or washing with soap and water on a regular basis. Now, here's the problem. A great number of the people living in this country don't have access either to um, nearby resources or regular res- uh, resources of water. And that is a problem that I think has been one of the areas that the government has let down this country the most on. Our water purification plants have virtually disintegrated. Most of our municipalities don't manage water at all. It's just been left to ruin because largely it's less a financial issue than it is a competence issue. And we are living in 
we are a water-scarce uh, society, and I think we've tended to let that go. We, our previous ministers of water, like uh, Edna, uh, not uh, Edna Mokonyani, um, uh, Minister Mokonyani, I forget her, 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 first, her name immediately, uh, was an absolute disaster. Most of them have been. Where Lindiwe Sisulu stands on that scale is too early to tell. But one hasn't heard that much. One certainly hasn't heard the level of urgency that is that is needed. And she has apparently been awarded some international prize for the management of of water. What on earth that could possibly be about, I do not know, because she hasn't really managed anything yet. Um, uh, what's interesting, uh, but a situa- a, um, an issue that won't die entirely is expropriation without compensation. But it may have been to some extent put on hold in the sense that the hearings that are being held countrywide, half of them are still to be held and they haven't yet, and they've decided they have to hold those hearings because certainly most of the hearings thus far, more than a hundred people attend and, and events that have a hundred people or more attending have been banned. So they have put a hold on the hearing process from here, from here onwards. And it's going to be very interesting to see at what point they, it'll be deemed suitable for those hearings to resume. What it does obviously is delay the move to make EWC legislation and the change of the constitution, constitution to section 25 for expropriation without compensation that does kick it further into touch. Uh, from the Institute's point of view, that is, we don't consider that a bad thing because we, we, we really do believe that it is neither necessary nor desirable to change the constitution. So we are living in extraordinarily interesting times in the sense that this is one of the few instances where the world is being affected economically and in every other way, and not as a result of war, but as a result of a prediction Bill Gates made at a TED Talk five years ago that a virus would be the thing that could really wipe, could could effectively wipe us out. So on that very cheerful note, uh, I thank you very much for being with us. Recommend again dailyfriend.co.za for all this and other support, and we'll see you next time.